Hello and welcome to the Food Safety Dish, a production brought to you by the Local Food Safety Collaborative. I'm your host, Catherine Cavanaugh. The Local Food Safety Collaborative is a cooperative initiative established between the National Farmers Union Foundation and the FDA with the goal of providing training, education, and technical assistance to local food producers to ensure good food safety practices and compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act. National Farmers Union is a grassroots, farmer-driven organization that believes strong family agriculture is the basis for thriving communities. NFU's membership includes over 200,000 family farmers and ranchers across America. Farmers Union's grassroots structure promotes locally initiated policy priorities and educational topics established by their members. Learn more about National Farmers Union at www.nfu.org. Today, we will be diving into water testing, types of water sources, why you should test your source, and how to do so. I'm joined by our local food safety collaborative partners at Kentucky Horticultural Council, Danny D'Antonio and Dakota Moore. I'm also joined by our food safety project manager, Billy McCarthy. The Kentucky Horticulture Council's purpose is to support state horticulture industries and be a resource for information and education for growers, business owners, and the public to promote a thriving industry. Danny D'Antonio is the food safety technician for the Kentucky Horticultural Council and works directly with growers on farm food safety programs to ensure their compliance with regulations and best management practices. She is a graduate of Columbia College in Chicago, Illinois, and has worked on several specialty crop farms and just bought her own farm in central Kentucky. Dakota Moore is the grower outreach coordinator for the Kentucky Horticultural Council. He has a background in greenhouse production, public garden management, and floral design, and has received both his BS in ag science with an emphasis in horticulture and MS in ag science from Murray State University. His projects include cut flower production and marketing, sustainable ag, and ag water safety education, as well as grower promotion. Welcome to the Food Safety Dish, Dakota and Danny. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Excited. All right. Well, let's dive right in to our first question. Can you talk about the differences in water sources and common risks associated with each respective source? Yeah. So when we talk about our water sources, we look at three main sources. So you've got municipal water. That's the water that comes straight from your city or your county. The next would be the groundwater. So this is any water that comes from a well or comes from a spring, an underground spring. And then we've got the surface water. So that's water found in uh, ponds, creeks, water that's collected. So uh, water in cisterns or reservoirs. Uh, The municipal water has the lowest risk uh, for contamination from bacteria or microorganisms because this is coming from the city or the county. They should be testing this water, making sure that it's uh, treated and clean. The groundwater has low risk, but there's still a risk associated with that if maybe the well casing is cracked or some of your piping isn't secured and may have leaks. And then the surface water has the highest risk. So this is water that is exposed to the air. 
It's exposed to uh, contaminants coming from animals, animal waste, and water that is uh, coming from maybe the sides of hills running down into your collected water or your pond. Water that is coming from a roof where birds sit and produce waste. So that one has the highest risk. Thanks for sharing. That's good to be aware of all the different sources and what to look out for. Can you distinguish the difference between pre and post harvest water and the requirements necessary and maybe some of the best practices for each of those as well? Yeah, so post harvest water is going to be any water that you use for activities after harvest. So washing, cooling, storing, um, washing any of your food contact surfaces or your harvest tools. And this water must meet drinking quality standards. So we'll probably get more into the nitty gritty of the what we would be testing for but this the test for post-harvest water needs to come back with zero presence of E. coli so most people usually use municipal water for washing but groundwater can also be used if it's being tested regularly and doesn't have any presence of E. coli and should be noted that untreated surface water is not suitable for any post-harvest activities. I think m most of what we'll end up talking about for the purposes of this conversation will be the pre-harvest water, since there's so much more nuance in sources that we can use and things that might affect that source. So pre-harvest water is going to be your irrigation water frost protection, foliar sprays, anything that happens in the field. And so you can use any of the sources that Dakota mentioned earlier for pre-harvest, but it does still need to be tested for E. coli. Yeah, we'll get into how to know if your water is suitable or not, I'm guessing in the following questions. So did that answer your question, Catherine? Yes, definitely. Okay. Could you share some of the best practices for each pre and post harvest water and maybe how it changes with differing water sources? Yeah, so kind of what Danny touched on with the post water, you're only going to be using that for uh, you're using municipal water for that. You don't want to use surface water. Um, you can potentially use the groundwater for that, but we want to avoid uh surface water for any post-harvest um, water needs uh, because there will be no die-off period for that bacteria. There's the higher chance of that bacteria coming in contact with consumers. So we're going to strictly focus on uh, pre-harvest water uh, using that surface water. For the pre-harvest water, you can potentially use any water source. Uh, you just want to be testing the water to make sure uh, it's safe and not contaminating potentially your produce. It's probably good for us to note right now about the covered versus the not covered produce under the FSMA water rule. I, I think you did a whole episode on this, Catherine, about the water rule, what's covered and what's not. But just for a recap, the covered produce are things that are going to be consumed either raw, aren't going to be peeled or, you know, 
will be not cooked or processed in any way. So things like leafy greens, tomatoes, uh, any fruit that's not peeled, uh, so berries specifically, those things are going to be covered under the water rule. So you're not going to be allowed to have uh, you know, bacteria, microorganisms coming in contact with this produce and then being sold and consumed. Uh, things that aren't covered would be anything that has to be peeled or cooked or processed before it can be eaten. So if you've got bananas, onions, potatoes, things that are going to be peeled or have to be cooked before they're consumed, uh, you can have a little more ease with your water source choices. We're not saying you should use really contaminated water for for those crops, but there's a lot less risk associated with those because they, there's a chance for that bacteria to be killed with cooking or removed from the peel. Yes, thanks for clarifying. Could you share why should I be testing my water and what is commonly the best way to do so? Sure. So why you should be testing the water? When we take a sample to a lab, uh, what we're going to have them test for is the presence of E. coli. So there's a lot more bacteria and microorganisms than just E. coli that we need to be worried about. Uh, But E. coli is an indicator. So if a test says there's a presence of E. coli in a water sample, then you can assume that there are other microorganisms, other bacteria in that water. And so instead of testing for all of those different things, we're just going to test for one uh, so we can know, yes, it's got uh, microorganisms or no, it probably doesn't. So that's what we're testing for. We test for E. coli too because it's, it's an indicator of pathogens found in feces. So that's what we're that's particularly what we're concerned with is, is the presence of fecal contamination that has a whole host of other pathogens besides just E. coli. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And why we're testing for this presence of um, these pathogens, bacteria, microorganisms, uh, is to make sure that we're not contaminating the produce um, because that could cause people to be sick. It could cause a financial burden to uh, the farmer. If you have to then pay for medical bills because you're found liable from, from the contaminated produce, if you're having to, depending on the size of your operation and the uh, markets you're selling to, you may have to pay for that product to be recalled. So you'll have to pay for, you know, advertisements announcing the recall. You may have to pay to uh, have the product removed and possibly replaced. Uh, So in order to reduce the risk to health and the the risk financially, uh, we need to do these tests to make sure we're in the clear and reducing that, that risk as much as possible. Testing also helps us get a better grasp of what our water source looks like so that we can take the necessary precautions. Uh, Without the testing, we could assume most surface water has 
this presence of E. coli and other pathogens. Uh, but if we can test and learn the exact amount of contaminant in our water, we can know the severity of mitigation uh, tactics we need to take in order to prevent uh, uh, you know, an outbreak of E. coli or some other pathogen. If we just have a little bit of contamination, the steps we're going to have to take are going to be less severe than if we've got a large amount of contamination. Is there anything you want to add, Danny? Yeah, about how you were saying, you know, this is kind of creating a baseline for for what your water source looks like. It's getting to know your water source. And so when a test comes back and the levels are way higher than your previous tests, you might know, okay, well, there might be something wrong with my system. I need to go check my wellhead and make sure that it's not cracked. Or if you're using a stream of some kind, it may be an indicator that somebody upstream from you is dumping sewage or that there's animal activity there. Again, these things, you know, they're out of your control, but it's it's the understanding of your source. And so when we collect a database, we kind of use the produce safety rule calls it the geometric mean. It's the average of your water samples for an extended period of time so that you can make informed decisions, um, informed management decisions on how you apply your water or when you apply your water, or if you even should be trying to, you know, maybe you need to be looking to change to municipal water if it's something out of your control that is consistent. So, yeah, and I also wanted to share some statistics from the project that we've been doing just as a as another why we should be testing our waters. So the Hort Council um, started providing on-farm technical assistance to growers in Kentucky in 2019, um, and we've been doing that since then. So our initial sampling of 17 different growers in different regions of Kentucky indicated that 30% of the water sources of those 17 growers exceeded the allowable microbial water quality standards for production water. So that was kind of a, like this, you know, there is a need for us to, for growers to be understanding their water. And that Mm -hmm. was really telling of that. So, Yeah. Do you find that growers are often surprised when their levels are so high? Most of the time, especially if they're, you know, using it on something that's covered under the rule. Um, We've had a few growers that have had wells come back with uh, some levels. So if, if that's, you know, their own drinking water as well, that's something they might be a little surprised (laughs) to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not a pleasant surprise. Yeah, um, as as far as surprise as well, we have had a grower whose municipal water was contaminated. So that's like, you know, not unheard of. It's rare. I hope it's rare. But they were growing mushrooms and 
I think they were having some like um their mushrooms weren't they were being why can't I think of the words that I'm trying to think of? Like colonized or Thank you, colonized. <laughs> um so anyways, they had they did get their their city water tested and were surprised to find out that it too was contaminated. So if you're curious, you can also have your municipal water tested and you can also request for your municipal water, you can request the analysis. But if, if you're seeing an issue, uh, you can have, you know, request that uh, municipal report, but then also test your own water and see maybe there's something on your end, whether it's in your irrigation lines or your piping that could be causing that contamination. I don't think we covered how to test, so I can do that. <laughs> yeah, let's get into that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how you're going to test, um, you're going to find a water lab first, uh, and then you'll ask them for a sampling bottle. Most of the time, they'll be able to provide a bottle for you. If for some reason they won't, you can order them online. You're going to look for uh, 100 milliliter bottles. They need to be sanitary or sanitized and sterile. Um, you want to have a bottle that's got the like plastic rim around the top so you know it's not been opened. Because we want to prevent any other contamination entering the bottle and giving us false uh, conclusions. Uh, so you'll wait to open it until you're ready to test the water and put the water right in the bottle. You'll keep your hands away from the rim. Don't put a finger inside the bottle. Don't touch the inside of the cap either. You'll want to clean your hands beforehand and possibly wear sterile gloves. Uh, and then the actual testing will depend on what your water source is and kind of how you're applying it. So um, if you're using municipal water or a well water, uh, you can probably test right from the hydrant. And when you do that, you'll want to let the water run for a few minutes just to clear out any uh, anything sitting down in the, in the lines. Uh, and if you're testing from a pond or, or a creek, um, you can... Uh, find a dipper pole to reach out into it or some other way to reach away from the edge. Uh, you just want to avoid sticking your your bottle into the or your dipper into algae or any other debris that could mm. have some sort of contamination with it. Um, but you can also test directly from where the water touches your plant or uh, gets to your plant. So if you're using drip irrigation, it might be a good idea to try to connect to like an inline valve near your, uh, you know, on your drip line or near your plants and take the sample that way. Cause that will give you the most accurate uh, result of what it looks like when it gets to your plant. And that, that could mean, you know, uh, contamination in the water or, uh, you know, in your irrigation lines, either way, it's still affecting what water is reaching your plant. Once you take that sample, uh, you'll want to put it in a cooler and get it to the lab within six hours. Um, this is important. The bacteria and the microorganisms, pathogens can start to, to change or die off, you know, outside of that six hours. So uh, as soon as you can get it to the lab. I will recommend 
if you're sampling from different water sources, so say you've got a, a well you water some of your plants with and you use a pond for the other part, you're going to want to label these sample bottles differently so that you don't get your results mixed up and think one is okay and the other one isn't when it should be reversed. An easy way to do that would be, say, you label your, your well is A and then your pond is B. And then so each time I take a test or uh, take a sample, I'm going to uh, assign a different number. So A01 will be my first sample from that well. And then in a few months when I sample again, it's going to be A02. You can write this on your bottle so you don't get them mixed up on the way to the lab. And then also when you're filling out paperwork at the lab, they might have a spot for either a sample address or uh, some other indication. And you could write that label you've created uh, in that blank. That way, when you get your results back, you'll know which results are for which sample. When you get to the lab and you fill out that paperwork, you need to make sure you're asking for the quantitative levels of E. coli. This is a very important distinction. If you take a water sample to a lab, some labs will just run the, the presence of E. coli. So your results will say yes or no. If you're testing a surface water, uh, it will probably always say yes. And that mm -hmm. does very little for us because we know there's E. coli in that water. You can be pretty much sure that a surface water has some E. coli in it. Uh, so you want to get that exact number so that you can find those, uh, you know, geometric mean and that um, statistical threshold uh, so you can know how much bacteria is actually in your water. Is a lab the only way to test the water or what is the best way to find a lab too? I'm not aware of any like home tests. There may be. <laughs> um, I don't know, Dakota, if you know, mm -hmm. but. I don't know of any. We always recommend taking your sample to a mm -hmm. professional lab. So. Yeah. There's a couple of resources that I know of for finding a lab. The Northeast Center to Advance Food Safety at the University of Vermont has created a map of national water testing labs. And it's always kind of updating. And so they also have a spreadsheet PDF version that has more information to, you know, considering like, does the lab provide quantitative testing of E. coli? Things like that. So Catherine, I can share that link with you, but I'll just go ahead and say it now too. It's go.uvm.edu backslash water lab map, all one word. Um, but in Kentucky, we have a more extensive list that we've created that um, all of our labs are not actually on this national lab. So I think very likely each state has either like their ag agents or, um, sorry, your extension agents or like an ag organization mm -hmm. in your area might have created a better database that's more specific to your area. So I would definitely reach out to some of your ag people in your state. Um, or you can also just 
Google water testing labs and start calling them to find out if they do the tests that that you need. So you will again ask ask for the quantitative testing of E. coli. So yeah, do you have anything to add to that, Dakota? Yeah, so sometimes universities will have uh, labs. Uh, you may see them advertised in the paper every now and then if they have like a collection day. Um, there's also several companies that do more than just uh, water testing. Uh, usually they'll have lab in their name somewhere. And so these are places that do a lot of testing for, you know, various things. Um, but you can find them in you don't have to be a business to, to use a lot of these. So you can just walk in. Um, also some water treatment facilities out in the counties offer uh, testing. Typically they'll call it like uh, well water testing, um, but you can use pond water uh, through that. Just make sure that they're doing that quantitative levels of E. coli. Mm-hmm. How frequently would you say is wise to be testing your water source? So it depends on what you're using the water for and also what your water source is. Um, so if you're using uh, municipal or well water for post-harvest uses, it's going to be four times your first year and then one time each year after but if you ever have levels of E. coli present, then you're going to need to start that testing over again and do the four four tests a year mm. until you've got that that four tests of no levels. Um, and if you do get a test back that's positive and has a presence, then you need to cease using that water source for the post harvest until you can make sure it's it's free of the contaminant. Uh, for the, the pre-harvest uses, uh, if you're using groundwater, it's going to be four times a year. You're going to need to test that. Uh, and then for the any surface water, you're going to use five times a year for, for that number. And these are recommendations from FISMA, um, from the Produce Safety Rule. So. Yes. Mm -hmm. And sorry, when I say recommendations, I mean requirements. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Billy from NFU here, I'm curious, of course, we might get a chance to talk about some of the bigger, you know, risks of, of water contamination. And certainly when we do these tests and have these testing intervals, there are times where um, there might be things that require, you know, a big response or might be partially out of your control. But what are some easy ways for farmers to think about making sure that they have, you know, safe, uncontaminated water uh, or to mitigate the, the risks of contaminating their water? Uh, you're going to want to check check your system. So if you've got a well, you want to check that well casing, make sure it's sealed, make sure there's no cracks or leaks getting in there. Uh, you're going to want to check any pumps and uh, irrigation lines. Make sure if you can sanitize those, you should do that, uh, you know, every now and then. And make sure that system is not the, the source of your contamination, whether that's 
confirmed or in the future, it's just good to, you know, keep checking on those things. That's also a good way to make sure you're doing regular maintenance on your irrigation lines and your pumps. You can also try to keep as many animals away from your water source as possible. So that's domesticated animals would be the easiest thing to keep away. So pets, uh, livestock, anything like that, if you can keep them away with fencing. Uh, Fencing would also keep away wild animals like deer, uh, raccoons, possums. The hardest thing to keep away is the birds. But if we can make sure we're keeping other things away, hopefully the birds would be the only source of contamination. And then the last thing you can probably do is to try and redirect any runoff you have. Uh, Runoff will carry contaminant, you know, from a good distance away, especially if if your water source is next to a hill. It's going to carry anything from the top of that hill down into your water source. So if you can redirect that, that runoff away from the pond, away from... Entering the creek, that's going to be your best bet at keeping anything that's on the ground from from getting into the water. And I'd imagine that uh, some of the answer is going to be similar to what you just said, but let's say we do get a a negative result back on one of the tests that we run um, or, you know, a, a result that's out of the recommended or required ranges. What are the best steps to kind of follow up and triage after you get a, a water test that's not where it should be? So you can do some short-term things to kind of test and see uh, where your contamination is coming from. So if you aren't keeping animals away and you get a test like that, maybe try to keep uh, animals away and see if that brings your levels back down with your next test. Also, try sanitizing your lines and hoses if possible. Maybe that was your source of contamination uh, and your next test may may bring that level back down. But long-term things, things that would reduce your risk you know, without having to worry about it, hopefully in the future, uh, would be not to overhead water any raw eaten crops. So that's just trying to keep that water from even coming in contact with the produce. So drip irrigation is is very important to keep that water from splashing up or spraying up onto uh, the the produce. You could also cover, uh, especially if your produce is very low to the ground, cover your irrigation lines with plastic. So if you're doing plastic culture, uh, you're probably already putting your irrigation lines your drip lines underneath that plastic, and that's already reducing a lot of your risk. Uh, So if you continue to have those high levels, maybe reevaluating your irrigation would be your best best bet to, to keep that risk low. Using those drip lines, covering it with the plastic should keep that water off of your produce. And then I think... Danny, you want to cover the die-off period? Sure. Yeah, one more thing I could add to before we talk about how to change how we apply the water is you could also try using a sand filter. So sand filter can kind of eliminate 
particles being carried to your crop fields that may be carrying pathogens. So that's one thing to try and again, continue to test to determine if that's helping. And then, so once you've got a good database of your samples and you've started creating this geometric mean and statistical threshold value, you can determine if there is a a die-off period, a microbial die-off period. So that's the period between irrigating and between between irrigating and harvesting to, in theory, let the the pathogens die off. Um, so I know that's kind of confusing. So I want to suggest there's a there's a really great tool. It is from the Western Center for Food Safety at UC Davis. Um, and it's just, it's an Excel spreadsheet. So you can enter the results of your samples in there. The, the results of your, the, your colony forming units of E. coli per your results from the lab. And it's going to tell you a couple things. It'll tell you your geometric mean and your statistical threshold value. It'll tell you, does your water meet the produce safety rule criteria? It'll tell you, does it deviate? How much does it deviate from the, the produce safety rule criteria? And if there are corrective measures necessary, and then it will lastly tell you if a micro, if using a microbial die-off period between irrigation and harvest, how many days are necessary for that. So sometimes it'll be one day you can water your crop and one day later you can harvest it. Some days, it, sometimes it will be four days, in which case, you know, like you can water your lettuce, but you can't wait four days <laughs> to harvest your lettuce. So you're going to need to look to other methods if the crop cannot handle the that die-off period. And I think the last thing is treatment. I don't have direct experience with folks treating their irrigation water, so this is something we should probably fact check, but it's my understanding that there's not currently an EPA-approved chemical treatment for contaminated irrigation water. Um, But hopefully this is something we're able to access in the future because it would be a much more certain safety measure to be able to treat our water um, than to just say, wait four days and hope it's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And one thing I want to add um, that we've touched on a little bit, but we haven't really gone into um, is that, you know, one test you get back with a really high level isn't the end if you're using pre, using the water for pre-harvest purposes. Um, there's different factors that can contribute to a spike in it. So if you test right after a, a hard rain, then your levels may be a little higher because of fresh runoff. Um, but you know your day-to-day levels probably aren't that high. Um, that's why we take so many 
test a year to get that that mean that average of our levels and so if you if your mean is is staying pretty high then you've got high levels of contamination it's it's good to to then make these measures um, but if you're if you're pretty low and then you have one spike you might want to investigate maybe why that spiked um, but if it's really out of out of character with your past tests and then it your levels drop back low uh, it's not a great concern to you know run out and change everything you've been doing um, but it's it's still something to keep in mind uh, and keep in the back of your head What are some of the most common FAQs you all get at Kentucky Horticulture Council? The first one is, why should I test? Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I hope we've answered that. Um, Hopefully we've yes. <laughs> And then, yeah. <laughs> Another one would be like, uh, can I use a water bottle or a mason jar to take my samples? And mm. we, we said no to that one. Um, and then uh, probably the other ones would be like, is this, am I able to use these tests for gap, you know, my gap inspection or my organic certification? Um, and the answer is yes. These should work for those. So it's important to keep these results. When you get them back from the lab, you need to make sure it's labeled properly, dated properly, uh, and file those away. So when the certifier or the inspector comes, uh, you can give the, these results to them. They can use them the way they need need to, and you should be good. I don't know if there's any others you want to add, Danny. Yeah, I mean, we get a lot of questions about interpretation of lab results, which is just is just kind of tricky. I kind of always lead people back to that calculator. Yeah. I don't know how how like deep in the nitty-gritty of that you all want to get cuz it's just I feel like it can be overwhelming. And so I'm re- I'm grateful that there's this tool that can kind of help with that. Mhm. Yeah, it's hard for us to teach or tell someone just verbally mm. what what these results mean. I can, you know, tell them how many colony forming units were in that test, um, but until you get at least those four or five tests to then determine that mean and that that threshold, um, it it doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, Mm. unless it's it's like a well test and i see that there's a presence of e coli and then we can say hey you need to do something about that (laughs) because especially if you're drinking that (laughs) right Mm -hmm. are labs usually able to help interpret results or uh, do they just provide the answer or not the answers just provide the the data probably just the data um (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, I don't know if I've been asked that before, but yeah, that's that's probably not the labs. I wouldn't go to them mm-hmm. for that unless they offer that service, um, like consultation or something, but I've not heard of it. I know, Dakota, you mentioned the the university 
labs that some, like we have one of our universities has some water testing labs and they do provide, I mean, it's, it's specifically for agricultural water. Mm-hmm. So they do provide guidance and I, I wouldn't be surprised right. if some other universities are also offering that along with lab, um, with testing. So, but yeah, our, yeah, the labs that we work like with the ag generally department. do not provide. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a private lab that that does a lot of other testing, then I wouldn't count on them to help you. So use mm-hmm. those tools, or you know, find a an ag university or an uh, extension agent in your state. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that could help you or help you find somebody that can. Yeah, I would just echo that folks should reach out to Extension or organizations in their state or region like Kentucky Horticulture Council or any of our other partners on the Local Food Safety Collaborative or actually reaching out to us directly. Like that's why we're all doing this work is to hopefully connect folks with the resources that help them interpret and understand the food safety risks and needs on their farms. So um, inviting you all to connect with us uh, when you need that type of direction. What about like extreme events like flooding? Um, are there ways to prepare or prevent total damages or loss or deal with the food safety um, you know, implications of extreme events that could also see, you know, in, in terms of water flooding, maybe like a really torrential rainstorm or hail event or something like that could be a concern for farmers. So the uh, flooding would be really hard to prepare for and for us to kind of recommend ways to prevent, um, like from a food safety, uh, prevent contamination in in case of a flood, um, because there's so many factors that go into it. Um, And then uh, in the aftermath of a flood, there's a lot of uh, different safety concerns, uh, but from a water safety standpoint, um, there's a few recommendations, uh, but it, it is going to be, uh, you know, dependent on, you know, the, the flooding, how severe it was, what is located nearby, uh, and maybe what the water came through. Um, but there are some recommendations generally if, if the produce either wasn't on the plant at the time. So in, in my garden right now, if, if a flood were to come through, um, my tomatoes, my peppers, nothing's really producing right now other than the, the lettuce. Um, so the lettuce would probably be lost. I probably couldn't, uh, you know, harvest any of that, but if the other plants were to survive and then in a month start producing produce, um, from the water safety standpoint, uh, that produce uh, should be considered unadulterated, so I should be able to to harvest. Water sources, on the other hand, you'll need to start testing right away, uh, and then after uh, you know maybe a few weeks after, and then a few weeks after that, test again to make sure you're 
your contamination level to begin with will probably be high, um, but you need to start, you know, taking those tests routinely again to watch that that level of contamination, make sure it's going down. Um, and then once it's below that, you know, the threshold, uh, then you can start using that again for the pre-harvest waters. Um, this is not mentioning, you know, other contaminants uh, like heavy metals uh, that people sometimes see in the soil or in the water sources afterwards. This is purely about the that E. coli uh, and other pathogen contamination. I don't know if Danny has anything to add. I think you pretty much covered everything. Um, yeah, I mean, it's prevention of loss is... Not, not our <laughs> not our area on f- from from this it's more we're more um thinking about it from a food safety perspective and so it's really kind of mm-hmm. an after um our expertise would be more in the like after the flood happens um and i guess i just encourage folks to to test yeah after a flood but also maybe work with your mm-hmm. state and local regulators to determine if your your crops are still safe um, because it's going to be really on a case-by-case basis. Um, there is a helpful article that maybe I'll send you also. It's from the FDA. Um, it's called Guidance for Industry Evaluating the Safety and Flood-Affected Food Crops for Human Consumption. And so that's that gets a little bit more in depth on the like contaminant, the other types of contaminants, um, heavy metals and chemical contaminants uh, as well. So. I think if you were pretty worried about the potential for a flood, um, you could maybe if a play, if an area of your farm floods fairly often and you're afraid if there was a heavy flood you would lose everything maybe avoid planting you know s- shorter plants so if you've got fruit trees maybe think of putting those in those areas because your fruit will mm. be a lot higher away from the the ground and hopefully you don't have a flood that's going to reach you know up to your apples or peaches mm-hmm shorter things like leafy greens, those would be the first thing affected and probably completely Mm -hmm. uh, lost. So maybe consider doing those in an area that is less likely to flood. Um, It's really just, it's hard to tell. And and it would also depend on the time of the year too. So Mm -hmm. in here in Kentucky, we had floods last year in Eastern Kentucky uh, and it was, uh, you know, during harvest time. So a lot of crops were lost because the, the produce, the fruit, the vegetables were already on the plants uh, and those just had to be discarded. Um, if it happened in the early spring and that produce wasn't there, then, then you might be okay. I wanted to add a little bit, you know, thinking about what you guys both shared and um, reflecting on on the question that I asked you, um, I definitely think, you know, as much preparation you can do, and we've all got so many things to do as farmers, um, but if you have that baseline of testing, 
um, beforehand, then you can know what has changed if there is a dramatic weather event or a flood or something like that. The other thing I would recommend, um, I know as a farmer in, in my area, um, our FSA office has been reaching out and yeah, reminding us that there's more support for specialty crop um, insurance around uh, these days. So, you know, potentially considering those uh, programs, again, offered by maybe your state or the federal agencies like USDA, just to make sure that you're protecting yourself ahead of time. And then if um, something unfortunate happens, um, you know, you've got at least records and potentially an insurance policy to help you out, um, you know, navigating um, recovery efforts on that end. Yeah, that's a good thing to mention. And I would also say, you know, you, you know, if you're, if you're worried about the quality of your water, be it surface water or well water in your area, you can check out resources like um, the USDA Web Soil Survey or different resources, I believe, on the U.S. Geological Survey to see if you're in an area that's prone to flooding or are there any concerns about the uh, geography or geology of your area that might impact your surface or uh, subsurface water. Yeah, having that that baseline as something to refer back to after a, a flooding incident um, is key, so that you can see, you know, maybe how much work needs to be done to get you back down to that level. And if people need help understanding crop insurance, last year we produced a webinar series on crop insurance for specialty crop growers. And you can find all that information on the Kentucky Horticulture Council YouTube page. We've got a whole playlist of videos covering lots of different policies and programs uh, and different aspects of crop insurance. Nice. Yeah, definitely be sure to check their website and YouTube playlist out. They have a lot of really helpful information. Well, do you all have any final advice, tips or tricks, words of wisdom to share before we end our session here? Uh, yeah, check out our, our social media and our, our website. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we do a lot of work with different projects uh, in addition to the water safety. Um, so even though if you're not in Kentucky, you can still have access to, to that uh, information and all the things we put out. Also, I know that testing can be costly, especially if you have a lot of different water sources uh, or if, um, you know, you're, you're really intent on getting that contamination level low. Um, but uh, it, it's not as much as the, the medical bills you might have uh, for anyone mm. that's, uh, you know, becomes sick from, from the produce or any of the, the recall costs. Right. There are insurance out there you can get. You can, uh, in addition to your liability insurance that you may have to have to sell to uh, certain uh, you know, businesses or at certain markets, you can add on you know, recall insurance uh, if you're really concerned about that. Um, so that's another cost you can uh, you could have if if you don't want to do the testing and make sure your your water is safe um, but you should also do it for your own sake because you're probably consuming some of your own produce 
or potentially mm-hmm. drinking from this the water source. So you need to make sure it's safe for yourself, not just the the consumers. Definitely. We can look at it as an investment in health and the longevity of, you know, your farm and your business as well. So sometimes it's okay to spend a little bit up front to save a lot later. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. And on that note, I would just add, I know some, like all of this food safety stuff can be daunting and overwhelming. And I think particularly this water portion of things kind of overwhelms people. And um, I would just really suggest folks just start doing it, start testing, start like looking at your results. And I think it becomes much clearer and it's, you know, it's time consuming. Like Dakota said, it's time consuming and costly, Mm -hmm. but um, once you start doing it, it's not, it's not as overwhelming as you think it was. So, (laughs) and yeah, I just, I'm grateful for you all doing this podcast for exactly that reason, just kind of demystifying (laughs) all of these um, daunting things that we should all be paying attention to so yes well we're extremely grateful to you all for also helping demystify and illuminate some of the confusing things out there in food safety land so thanks so much for being a part of our podcast um do you have any final sentiments you'd like to say before we leave just thanks for (laughs) just thanks for what you all are doing keep doing it Yes, and thanks for what you're doing. We love working with you guys. So definitely check out Kentucky Horticultural Council's website for more information. And if you're interested in learning more about NFU and the work that we do, check out our website at www.nfu.org. And finally, thank you to our sponsor. This podcast is supported by the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a part of a financial assistance award to user 1FD00692103, totaling a million dollars with 100% funding by FDA HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by FDA, HHS, or the U.S. government. I'm Kevin Kavanaugh, and this is the Food City Dish. Until next time!